0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but now they were free. They could leave Egypt. God's people walked across the wilderness to the Red Sea. God showed the people the way. During the day, He went in front of the Israelites in a large pillar of cloud. At night, He went before them in a big pillar of fire so they could see where they were going. But Pharaoh changed his mind. He wanted the slaves back. Pharaoh and his army chased after them in chariots. The people of Israel were afraid. The people complained that Moses and Aaron had brought them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. Don't be afraid, Moses told them. The Lord will fight for you. God told them Moses to hold his staff out over the sea. When he did, the water split apart. The people walked right across it on dry land. Soon the Egyptian soldiers reached sea. Then they saw the dry path and started to cross. But God told Moses to hold out his hand over the sea while the Egyptians were still in the middle of crossing the waters. The waters came crashing back down. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. Now the Israelites were truly free.
1: Hey, good morning. You never know when these things are starting. Uh, so hi, my name is Nick. I am the youth pastor here at Crossroads, and I am so excited that I get to be teaching uh, this morning. And um, I'm loving these videos. I think it's so cool to have these kids read uh, to give us a, you know, it just feels like it gives us a different perspective um, where we read these sort of long, complex stories. It's cool to see them sort of succinct and read by these, you know, just darling, cute little children. Uh, You know, So the last time I taught on the stage, I was just thinking about it earlier, uh, I was teaching about Elijah and then in like three days after that, Texas shut down, uh, which wasn't the response I was hoping for from my message, but I don't know, any reaction is is a good reaction, I guess. So you never know what's going to happen after this today. So just, I don't know, be careful. Uh, Look both ways when you walk across the street. I don't know what's going to happen after I teach. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about the Red Sea today. And it's one of those stories that it seems like everybody has, some, has heard some version of. I mean, you could most likely cap, like stop anybody on the street and ask them, what's the story of Moses in the Red Sea? And they would come up with some version. I'm, I'm assuming, I haven't done the, the research uh, of what our, our little friend there just told us. So I wanted to do some market research in my own home, so I asked my kids. I asked them each the the same three questions. Now, I have a a 10-year-old named Kate, an eight-year-old named Harper, and a six-year-old named Cash, so two girls and a boy, and I asked them each three questions. The first question I asked was, what do you know about Israel crossing the Red Sea? Now, my oldest daughter, she gave a pretty good answer, and I'll paraphrase it, but she said something like, I know that was when God parted the sea because they'd been slaves for so long. They needed to be free, and they needed to go to that promised land thing. So they were trapped by the Red Sea, and they either needed to swim it or they would die, and God decided that he would part the water for them so they could walk through. So that's my 10 year olds answer to that question. Pretty good. Then I asked my 8-year-old Harper. She answered, well, he did this magical thing. So all the people were slaves when the emperor said he could take his people. Then he took them. And then what happened was they all got to the sea and they had a little nap. And then the people came from the back to attack because he wanted them back. And then I think he made the sea red with blood when they were coming, which confused them. And then God made a fire and like a huge fire tornado. And he made a huge bridge for them. When, and then when it collapsed, all the soldiers and maybe the emperor died. That's well, my eight-year-old's version of it. And my favorite one is my six-year-old. I said, okay, Cash, what do you know about Israel crossing the Red Sea? And he did this thing where his eyes get really big. He was like, I don't know. I loved it. I was very honest. So then I asked, how long was Israel uh, enslaved in Egypt? And Kate, my 10-year-old, said 2,000 years. It's not great. Harper said, their whole lives. And Cash said, like, not that long. So it really kind of spanned the spectrum on that one. And then the last one I said is, what happened after they crossed the Red Sea? And Kate said, the sea collapsed on all the Egyptians. Pretty good. Harper said, they kind of just went with their families and tried to find homes. So that's nice. And Cash said, they went back to Egypt. So I understand that I have some teaching to do with my children, particularly my son needs to learn that God did not part the sea so they could cross and then go back. Uh, But still... That's kind of what it seems like my kids learned about the story of the Red Sea somehow through their, their teachers in church or just maybe through their own study, who knows? But that's what they took away. And honestly, it's not far off from what I think most people would say. We all tend to have a similar understanding of this story. And the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God sent some plagues, He parted the sea, everyone got across, and the bad guys died. That's the basic gist of the story, right? But what we're doing in this series, which I think is a really cool idea that I did not come up with and wish I could steal, uh, was we're taking these classic sort of abridged versions of these stories and we're kind of unfolding them and looking a little bit deeper. Uh, You know, the the party line is, if if we grow up, our Bible stories should too, right? So we're looking at the, you know, the parts of these stories that maybe we don't always talk about with the kids, or maybe we just have forgotten about after we've only heard them in these abridged versions for so long. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at this story. And as we're doing it, the question that I think, that I think has bothered me the most from these stories, especially these, these big stories of huge things, like next week we're talking about the, the wall of Jericho falling down, and there were other times that God parted seas, and just the huge and miraculous events that took place in the Old Testament. What comes up in my heart a lot, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, when I read these stories, I tend to ask the same question. And it's, why does God save Israel when they cry out, but not always me? Why does God part oceans for them, but not for you and for me? Now, maybe you've had an ocean parted for you. And if so, you know, maybe you could go to the kitchen and have a cup of coffee because this might not pertain to you very much. But for me, I've never had a sea parted for me. It feels like I've, I haven't had these kind of rescues. At least that's what comes up in my heart. I'm, I just want to let you know. That's what comes up for me. So let's look at the story a little bit closer. And as we move through the details of this story, we'll get to the Red Sea. And then we'll kind of answer this big question of why does God part seas in the Old Testament, but not necessarily for me and for you. So first of all, I want to I break your hearts just a little bit. It's very likely that the Israelites were not actually slaves for 400 years. Okay, everybody calm down. It's okay. I said it. Everybody's going to be fine. But it is true that it is very unlikely that for all 400 years that the Israelites were slaves. I don't even want to get into the fact that there is a big theological debate against something called the new or the the early date theory and the late date theory, where it's also possible that when you read and study this book in Exodus, that maybe they were only even in Egypt for 200 years. That's a theory. It's not my theory. I didn't come up with it, but you can find out and research and learn that maybe they weren't actually even there that long. It's possible. But even just the being in slavery the whole time they were there just isn't really likely. In Exodus 1, 6, and then 8 through 10, it says, then Joseph died. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons that was sold into slavery and brought all of Israel to Egypt. Uh, It says, then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. So that's an event. Joseph died. He was about 110, and then all of his other brothers died. And it looks like Levi was the oldest at about 137. Then there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. A lot of times we read this and we think, man, Pharaoh was a jerk. But I don't know. I almost kind of empathize with this problem. He's looking out at his kingdom and he sees this, this great piece of land called Goshen. And the previous Pharaoh would have said, you get the best land in Israel," And he gave it in Egypt and he gave it to the Israelites. And so this new Pharaoh, this, who is dealing with problems from the previous administration, sees this and says, this might be a problem. Now, does he deal with it in the most ethical way? No. But he did have a problem. His people probably didn't understand why they were still there. It's a confusing time for Egypt, and he makes a decision. And honestly, in the very beginning, it doesn't seem like they even were slaves. It seems like he gave them jobs to do. It says that he appointed taskmasters over them, and they built great store cities called Pithon and Ramses. And then Because this was his first plan. If I give them jobs to do, maybe that'll chill out their multiplication problem that they keep doing. But it didn't work. And it says even in this chapter that the more that he gave them to do, the more they multiplied and grew stronger. And it was then in verse 13 that he says, all right, well, now we're going to make them slaves. So it definitely seems like there was a good chunk of time that they weren't actually slaves. I don't mean to break your heart, but that's just kind of the way the cookie crumbles. I could really use a cookie right now. So the thing is, there's a lot of dates and numbers in the Bible, but we're really not always totally sure where they go. And in this case, this is one of those. It says 400 years. It even says it later in Acts when Stephen is recounting the history of the Israelites in the world. He says they were enslaved for 400 years. Sometimes we just say things because we, that's the way we've always talked about them. That's the way they've always been told. Was it 350 years they were slaves? Was it 150 years? The thing is, it really kind of doesn't super matter because that's not the point, right? The point of this book is not to give the world a extremely accurate, detailed, numerical understanding of the dates and times and all those things. That's not what this book is about. The book of the Bible, these, these books that were written, they're meant to woo to show the story, of God wooing and rescuing the world to himself through his son, Jesus. So whether or not Israel was enslaved for 200 years or 400 years, it doesn't change the fact that God saved them and delivered them and us in our hour of need. Now, one of my favorite parts of this whole story of the Exodus is the story of the the plagues. It's a rough and dangerous time, but what I love the most about it is what God was doing with these plagues. I think upon first read, it's easy to think that God was using these plagues to just terrorize Pharaoh and Egypt and hoping that that would finally let them go. But when you really look at it closely, that's not at all what God was doing. You see, Israel had been there for a long time, and they hadn't heard from God during this time. The stories they had of God would have been passed down from Jacob and his sons and passed down to their generation and the next generation. And so honestly, it's very likely that many of the Israelites did not know who God was, had very little understanding of who he was. It's why when Moses is in the wilderness and this, this bush is on fire talking to him, he has to ask, what is your name? What do I tell people is your name? And God reintroduces himself to Moses, and then to all of Israel with the name Yahweh. I am who I am, I am. And so these plagues are a systematic dismantling of the Egyptian gods, not only just for the Egyptians themselves, but for Israel to learn and understand that this God who will rescue them is far greater and much more superior to all of these deities that Egypt had taught them and shown them for a couple centuries at least. I'm not going to look at every single plague, but I do want to give you a couple examples. Uh, The first one, right? The first plague was turning the Nile and all the water that came from it into blood, which killed the fish and made it completely unusable. Now, the Nile River, which was the life force of Egypt, uh, the Nile River had a few gods associated with it. There was one called Canum, who was the giver and guardian of the Nile. There was one called Hopi. Who was the spirit of the Nile, and also the god of fishes and birds and marshlands. And most interestingly, there was a god called Osiris, who was one of the trinity of the highest gods in Egypt. He was the god of the underworld, and it was said in Egypt that the Nile was his bloodstream. So God gave them this blood. He gave it to them, and it ruined everything, and it destroyed their way of life and dismantled the power that these people thought these gods had. The second plague, my personal worst nightmare, was a plague of frogs. Now, I have a teensy bit of personal experience with this. When I was living in the Philippines, my dad was in the Air Force, we lived all over, uh, there was one summer that frogs were everywhere. They found their way into our house. I I remember one particular uh, traumatic evening, I was taking a bath as like a six-year-old and a frog climbed through the faucet and jumped into the water, and I screamed like I had died. I don't like frogs. In fact, I was so scared, my parents had this staff made for me uh, that looked like a snake, and so I would like point it at the frogs, hoping that that would scare them and leave me alone. It didn't work, but it gave me a false sense of security, which was maybe their whole goal in the first place. So. God brings frogs into Egypt. Now, when you read this, maybe you think that this is just God pulling a practical joke on them. Because of all animals, this is so random and weird that frogs would be what God uses to wreck Egyptian society. But there's a reason. There's a reason. Number one, they're super gross. That's important to remember. Frogs are disgusting. Number two, frogs were considered a manifestation of the goddess Heket. Who was the goddess of birth and the wife of the creator of the world. She was depicted with the head of a frog and the body of a woman. Also, the court of Hapi included crocodile gods and frog goddesses and the primordial gods Num and Kek and He were each depicted as a man with a frog's head. So as God brings these frogs into Egypt, you would think that these Egyptian gods who were in charge of the frogs could remove them. But of course, they could not. And then of course, lastly, there was the the death of the firstborn, which is a rough portion of the Bible to read. Anytime that God chooses to wipe out or annihilate or take away a certain group of people, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to read. But he did. Thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. You see, even before God did this in Exodus 4, when Moses was first talking to Pharaoh, he warned him of this. In Exodus 4, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And we also know that 80 years before this, when Moses was born, there was a thing going around where Pharaoh had decided that because nothing that he had done had yet quelled the number of the Israelites, that all he could do was kill their children. And so Pharaoh issued an order and this one was particularly interesting. He issued an order, not just for the soldiers of, of Egypt to do, but for all Egyptians. If they see a Hebrew with a, with a son, throw it in the Nile. That was law. That was a rule. And it was a terrible time. And so God brings back that judgment on them for what they had done. That the final plague of Israel is to take their children And the thing is, during this terrible atrocity, again, the gods of Egypt were silent. Sirket, the goddess of protection, Sobek, the god of fertility, Renunit, the special protector god of the Pharaoh, none of these, Osiris himself, none of these did anything to stop this terrible thing. God put all the false gods, the gods of the Israelites, or the gods that the Israelites had grown accustomed to for centuries. God put them all to the test, and they were found completely worthless and powerless. In Exodus 12, God said, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. He reintroduced himself to Israel as their God. And lastly, Israel has left Moses has led them away, and there's, as we heard from the story, there was a pillar of cloud that guided them and a pillar of fire at night. God is really working overtime to show these Israelites who he is and what he can do. And he brings them to this particular spot at the Red Sea where they are basically trapped. They can't move south. They can't move west. All they can do is go back north or go east across the sea. And as they get to this point, all of a sudden, Pharaoh had decided that even though God had done all of those things, even though he's literally dealing with the death of his own son, that that's not going to work still. He needs the Israelites back. And so he takes, and this is important, he takes his army, not just some not just a couple hundred it says all pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army he rallies all his troops and says let's go get them so as they reach this this pinch point the israelites do right in front of the red sea they look back to the direction that they had came come from and they see this host of egyptian soldiers led by pharaoh himself coming towards them and they do what they do. They complain, right? They've already seen God do so many amazing things, but they still don't trust. And their complaint is, were there not enough graves back in Egypt? You had to lead us out here to die. And Moses responds, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. You see, the Israelites had grown up. Every one of these men, women, and children in this group of Israel knew the Egyptians as their owners. They knew the Egyptians as the ones that got them to do whatever they wanted. And so when they see them there, they recognize, well, that's it. Nothing we can do now. We're definitely going back. And in fact, they're probably just going to wipe out most of us. They, they knew this for a fact. So even though God had dismantled all of their understanding of these Egyptian gods, he still needed to wipe out this connection that they had to the Egyptian people, that they owned them. So the pillar of fire and cloud that stood between them moved around them and hid the Egyptians from the Israelites where they could not see what they were doing. And God tells Moses, go take your staff, place it in the water, and I will do something. And so Moses does, he takes his staff, and over the night, God brings an east wind that pushes the water back. And I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Prince of Egypt, which is my personal favorite representation of this story, but you watch it, and it's just so beautiful to see this water just move and the, the walls of water on the sides of them with, with the, the oceanic life just swimming in them, and you can see it. It's, it's just a beautiful thing to think that that happened, and these people witnessed it and saw it. And knew that it was from God. So all throughout the night, this wind is blowing. And then the Israelites begin to cross. And they begin to walk. And remember, there's a large number of them. And so it would have taken a few hours because this was sort of the thinnest section of the Red Sea. And so they're walking through the night across the Red Sea. Most likely, if I, if I were there, I would imagine it would have been deadly silent just everyone mesmerized by what's happening, watching this water, and maybe there's still a little tinge of fear inside them, hoping that nothing terrible is going to happen. But then they finally make it across, and they're making it through. And then God removes the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and the Egyptians can see. And Pharaoh, their leader, who... In my situation, if I was there, I would have been terrified and said, okay, I'm not going to mess with any of this noise. Let's just go back and forget it. There's literally a pathway through the sea. There's walls of water. I don't know how this happened, but I don't want anything to do with it. That's not what Pharaoh does. He charges. He calls for the charge, and they blast into the Red Sea, following the Israelites, hoping to overtake them. And it says in verse 24, the Lord himself threw them into a panic, and they cried out, Let's go back. The Lord fights for them. And after all the Israelites made it across, only a few hours, God told Moses to stretch out his staff again and bring the water back. And of those who followed God and obeyed his commands that day, not one of them fell into the sea. Not one of them had muddy shoes. Not one of them had a little bit of water on their garment. They walked through and left bone dry. But those who followed the one whose heart was hardened toward God. Not one of them remained. So yeah, God rescued Israel. They were in slavery, suffering, and in great distress, and they cried out and God took action. He saved them from a life of servitude and gave them their own land, flowing with everything they needed to thrive as a great nation on their own, even at one point becoming greater than Egypt. But here's the truth about it. Even this act wasn't enough to save Israel from themselves. You see, God may have sent plagues to defeat the enemies of his people. He parted the sea for a couple million Israelites to walk across, and then he did it again at the Jordan River 40 years later when Joshua leads them into the land He may have rained manna down from heaven twice a day for 40 years to feed his people. He may have given Noah an Ark, Adam and Eve, a perfect garden, but none of these acts, or even the sum of all of them, added up, made an eternal impact on all the souls of those who witnessed them. Despite all these great and wonderful acts, Israel, humanity as a whole, still continued to reject God and put their souls at risk. However, In a few short years of his life, Jesus turned the whole world upside down, taught with such authority that we still cherish his words today, performed such miracles as will never be forgotten. But most importantly, he died and came back, defeating death and the hold that sin had on us so that when we accept and believe in him, our souls are forever safe. For whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. And what God has joined together, man cannot separate. So yeah, here on this earth, our enemies may overtake us. We will suffer. Our loved ones will leave us and our bodies will decay and give out. And God may or may not heal us. He may or may not save us from physical pain and trouble. And he may or may not push back our enemies. My wife and I are friends with a couple where the husband and the father has been battling cancer for years. And just before COVID hit, he took a fall. And because of that, he's been quarantined away from his family for the last three months. And maybe in his, maybe in his private time, maybe even vocally, he's asking the question, where's my Red Sea moment? Where's my Ark? We all know people who have experienced great tragedy. Hospitals all over the world are filled with children who are sick There's a new tragedy every day in this country, stuff that I see, and I say to myself, I don't know how anyone could get through that. And I know that I often wonder why God doesn't just rescue them. Why doesn't God part the Red Sea for those people? There's something that we need to think about when it comes to this question. It's called the Stockdale Principle. Stockdale principle comes from a guy named James Stockdale, who was the former vice presidential candidate who, during the Vietnam War, was held captive as a prisoner of war for over seven years. He was one of the highest-ranking naval officers at the time. During this horrific period, Stockdale was repeatedly tortured and had no reason to believe that he would make it out alive. In fact, he was told that many times. He was held in the clutches of this grim reality, and he found a way to stay alive by embracing both the harshness of his situation with a balance of healthy optimism. He explained this idea like this. He said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. In Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he asked Stockdale, he said, who didn't make it out? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy, the optimist's. The optimists were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. When I think of people who are suffering, when I think of my own family, my own life, when it goes bad, my heart breaks in those moments. But the truth is, if we keep waiting for the Red Sea to part, we're gonna be stuck on the other side for a long time. Because here's something that we need to remember. We've already had our great Red Sea moment. Jesus said this when people were asking about what to do with anguish and what do we do when we feel lost. He said, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Our Red Sea moment, our ark, our, all of these things that we think we need on a daily basis has been delivered to us when Christ himself died and rose again and broke the bonds of sin and death and said, No longer are you held by these things that kept you from me. Now you have me. You don't need the Red Sea parted. I can take you across. You don't need to be delivered from all these things that trouble you because I have overcome the world and I have you. You're with me. And I am all that you need. When he said that he would dismantle these Egyptian gods and he said, I am the Lord, that resonates with me so deeply because I forget that that's all I need, is a God who stands up for me, a God who has overcome the world, a God who can walk me through whatever tragedy and difficulty I have to face. I have the Lord with me all the time. I don't need a Red Sea moment. I don't need to be constantly rescued from my trouble. I just need to remember that God has overcome the world and he is with me. While there will always be suffering and trouble in this world, disease, war, genocide, prejudice, slavery, while we are here, we ought to walk humbly and love justice and mercy. But at the end of this life, for those of us who trusted, believed, and followed Jesus, there is waiting on the other side a land filled with everything we need, where God is our King, and all that plagues us in this life will be washed away in the waters behind us. All that we need to do is hold tight to that, that, that fact that God is our God and he has overcome the world. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your constant, constant, constant love for us. Your steadfast and enduring passionate love for us that we forget. God, that we take for granted. God, I thank you for that love, and I thank you for what you've done for us throughout all of our existence, that you have constantly wooed us to yourself, that you have constantly showed us that you are trustworthy, that you are worth holding on to. And God, help us, help us, God, to stay on course to continue to follow you, that we would not waver from side to side, but that we would incline our hearts to you. God, wake us up every day with a fresh love for you. God, wake us up every day with a fresh desire for you. And Lord, when we find ourselves in deep and dark times, remind us that you have overcome the world and that we have only but to put our eyes on you, hold fast to you and follow you and you will take us where we need to go. You are good. You are loving. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.